Hi, this is Greg Green with Kafanica, the show about horror in all its fictional forms. And on today's episode, we'll learn about the literary lineage of one of the brightest stars in the firmament of American fiction. You know him because of his work on uh, books like, of course, My Heart is a Chainsaw, uh, comic books like Earth Divers, and even his regular column in Fangoria called Slasher Nation. And then coming up just a few days around when this podcast goes live, the sequel to My Heart is a Chainsaw, Don't Fear the Reaper. It's coming out on February 7, 2023. We're so excited to have Stephen Graham Jones here on the show. Hi, Stephen. How are you today? Man, thanks for having me, Greg. I'm happy to be here. Thrilled to talk to you. Absolutely. Well, um, I've, I've had a couple of episodes where I've talked to some favorite authors of mine about stories that made a big impact on them and helped to shape who they became as writers. And I asked you for a couple of stories and you gave me, it, they, were, they aren't really horror specifically, they're not genre, I guess you'd call it literary fiction, uh, though both of them have some very strong elements that are pretty shocking. Uh, you gave me two stories, Pro The Prophet from Jupiter by Tony Early, that was uh, published in Harper's Magazine, 1993, and also Lawns by Mona Simpson, published first in the Iowa Review, 1984. Now, when did you first read these two stories? I read Prophet from Jupiter, whenever, whichever Best American it came out in, which would have been the year after its publication. I'm guessing that must have been, when did you say it came out? When did 93, so yeah, probably, probably 94. Probably 94. And you know, actually... Louise Erdrich edited one of those um, annuals right around that time. It could have been hers. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that's when I, that's where I found that story. And as for Lawns, I found that story. I was working on my PhD at Florida State University, and I had to take a had to take a literature course to for some requirement. And I took a course called Gaps, G A P S, from David Kirby, a poet, and. What we were doing in that class was navigating the spaces between kind of story units or story blocks, like even between sentences, like um, how do you know how far to jump and how do you know when, when you can take the reader with you and what the reader is going to like and all that kind of stuff. And we only read two books for that whole semester, those 16 weeks. One of them was Peter Brooks's um, Psychoanalysis and Storytelling, which I still like a lot. And the other was not a book. It was this story, Lines. Every day for two times a week for 16 weeks, we talked about Lines. And I'm- Oh my goodness. Yeah, it was a, it was a great time. That is amazing. <laughs> so uh, so both of them were really part of the college experience for you. They were, yeah. Um, well, I mean, with Best American, I wasn't necessarily being assigned those as textbooks. I guess this would have come out when I was at the very end of my um, undergraduate degree. But um, I was inhaling every Best American I could find on the used shelf, on any anywhere. I wanted to just know what mattered you know and so I was reading all those books and wow and you know I found the prophet from Jupiter and I think I followed that to Tony Early has another story called we are Charlotte about um pro wrestling which is just amazing it's amazing in the same way that prophet from Jupiter is amazing to me and he did a collection um so this is heaven I believe and yeah he, he's he he was doing stuff I really liked right around that time well tell us about um the prophet from Jupiter I mean it's a remarkable story and, yeah. and, and we'll talk a little bit later. I think you'll see some of, kind of trace some of its impact on uh, your fictional worlds uh, just a little bit. But tell us what happens essentially yeah. in the story. The Prophet from Jupiter, it gets its title from one of the characters who is a real estate developer gone kind of, I don't know what you'd call him. He's a, he thinks he's a prophet anyways. Maybe he is a prophet. We don't know. Um, 
he, he's from Jupiter, Florida, and he's moved up to, what is it, North Carolina? Is that right? Uh, Lake Glen, North Carolina yeah. is, is what it has become. What It originally was a town called Uri between two yeah. mountains. Yeah. yeah. And um, so he's up there proselytizing and making letterback miniature chairs while his wife makes bullwhip and they sell them. But um, that's just why he's one small, small element of the story. The story is really about a, a dam keeper in his last moments of dam keeping, pretty much. He's, he's not being chased from town, but he is going to leave town. His wife has had an affair. She's pregnant with the police chief's kid. And you know, the way there's two ways that I read the prophet from Jupiter. The first way is um, there's like, there's enough information in this, like, what is it, a, probably a 16-page story yeah. to really fill a novel. There's enough stuff going on to fill a novel. It's really, really condensed. And I feel like the story is the water in the dam that's pushing, pushing harder and harder on the dam until it's going to burst at the end, you know? Um, yeah. And um, another way I think about this story is it's from an old thing I read in Discover Magazine, I believe it was, about, you know how when you're in a car accident or any kind of accident, um, time kind of slows down for you and you can remember stuff differently. Like I was reading about an experiment where they, you know, took 40 or 80 or whatever um, undergrad volunteers and stood them on the edge of like a pit with foam in it. And they would show them flashcards really quickly. And um, as they were showing them, they would push them back into the pit, you know, so they're falling as they're looking at these flashcards and the control group was just being shown the flashcards in a seminar room or something. And they found that the people who were falling as they looked at the flashcards could remember which flashcards went where so much better than the people at the table wow. at the table could. And yeah. I feel like that's what's happening here. This guy is in his very last moments of his life, not his life, but his life as he's known it, you know, and, and he's falling back into some vast void. He doesn't have a sense of really the future, you know, like all of us. And as he falls, he's just taking so many snapshots of his town. He's relaying the history of it to us. And so many of these paragraphs in this story, there'll be like four threads and there's no um, transition between them. They're just jammed up against each other. And if I had this story in text, I've always wanted to tease it out and like do the Junie line and do the um, um, the dam bursting like thread and just yeah. see, I, I feel like this is four or five kind of, 1200 word stories that have been layered together. Well, one of the major parts of the story is that his his wife, um, Elizabeth, who who who's cheated on him, who doesn't want really anything to do with them. And the narrator's never named. He's just the dam keeper. Uh, but his wife, Elizabeth, continues to uh, her narrative gets injected into uh, the story all, all throughout um, yeah. And, yeah. and interrupts his you know flow of like the historical mm -hmm. view of the town of Uri underneath. Um, she really haunts uh, haunts the story, but you'll yeah. just get details about her in the middle of uh, of a completely different narrative. Yeah, it, it feels almost as if um, I mean, she it's not just, just that she's his touchstone; she's his like compulsion. Like he he can't stop thinking about um, number one, you and I never had a child. Number two, yeah. you're having a child with the police chief now, you know, yeah. and we're still provisionally married or maybe splitting up or I don't know how that's working. And um, it's almost like maybe that's a third way to read it is that he really just wants to talk about his wife, but he's disguising it with all this other stuff, but it surfaces nevertheless, you know, yeah. I love the, the visual we get of him. He doesn't like, he doesn't ever do the stupid thing of I look in the bathroom mirror and my eyebrows were like this and my hair was like, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But he does talk over and over about his beard, you know, it's yeah. long, it's down to his middle of his chest. And of course, beards, you know, um, 
traditionally have been like a symbol or a sign of virility, you know, and virility yeah. is what he's like, um, feels like he's failing at, you know, because yeah, he couldn't father right. a child. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There seems to be a real a strong sense of kind of loss of virility, loss of um, I guess identity, like the the town used to be Yuri, and yeah. and at some point they built the dam, and the river came through, and it, it eventually flooded this mm-hmm. town of Yuri. Um, and so you've lost. And there were people who um, didn't know what to do. They like yeah. locked the doors and closed the windows because you never know when you want to come back, as one yeah. old lady says. And you don't. Um, yeah, uh, uh, there was one guy who just didn't. He would uh, kind of sat on a boat and started like hitting his his paddle on the mm-hmm. roofs of of houses is there um and then eventually um you know, shot himself to death there on that boat in the lake because he didn't know where to, else to live mm-hmm. and he and he has this this wonderful moment where they talk about the um the water getting so heavy wa- rain water coming down off the mountains and threatening to just dis- to uh destroy the dam water starts flowing around one side digs mm-hmm. digs its way through um and then the the people of the the town down below uh, on the downstream of the of the dam the people up on the mountains they all come down to try to save this dam they have to like get old get construction material from the the local hotel they're building they have to get they have to they shoot a bunch of mules and dump them down into the spot to try to stop yeah. the the water from rushing down and destroying the town and eventually they they win but it's this incredible heroic effort and that's juxtaposed immediately with kind of the shenanigans going on with color fest. It just looks like the blood is run thin, you know. It's yeah, it's kind uh, of a sad state of affairs compared to the the her- heroics, the heroics of like two generations back. I wonder if that's like a theme of this story is that change comes and you can't stop it, you know. Yeah. Um, that's what this narrator needs to learn is he needs to quit holding on to the way it was and check into the next thing that's going to happen maybe um but talking about that the water going around the dam um i love that before we like the 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 story kind of has two climaxes i feel like you know the first climax is that recounting of the dam nearly giving away or what how you know the the river overflowing the dam anyways the lake coming down and the second climax is um the prophet from jupiter going out to save shithead the dog the dog who chases ducks yeah. out on the lake while well, the lake's yeah. frozen over and and the dog has fallen through the ice yeah so the prophet yeah. of jupiter this strange proselytizer uh it, it slides out onto the ice to try to save the dog yeah but i love that before we we get to that first climax of the dam nearly giving away we've already heard the the abutment of land up there by it called Pierce Arrow Point. And you don't think about it, but then you understand why it's called Pierce Arrow Point because they dumped that Pierce Arrow car in there, you know? And yeah. and it makes it like just that one little detail, it makes everything real, you know? It, it It's like just getting getting things out of order like that um, gives it a, a sheen of reality and you invest in it as a real place, you know? Yes, yes. And in fact, it's it's strange that the narrator, the dam keeper is, um, has stated in here that, when the new mayor, the old mayor, uh, who, who's been mayor for a long time, he was one of the residents that you hear about from two generations back who was there when the when the town of Uri got inundated. Uh, and well, he's now got testicular cancer and he's not going to run for mayor again. So again, a little bit of that kind of loss of virility yeah. and the dam keeper is going to leave. The, the thought of him even being able to exist outside of this place seems kind of impossible. Who will he even be? 
Um, but yeah, it, it just seems like the story is, is I guess, in a way, a geobiography. You know, it's very much the, the story of this place and how this man, how this man sees it. No, I totally, I totally agree. And, um, um, and I liked it. It's never stated explicitly that Junie is that mayor's son, but we all know it, you know, I, I love it when things are done indirectly like that. When we as a yes. reader are allowed to assemble the pieces together instead of having it explicitly stated, uh, that, uh, yeah. it makes us participants. And when we participate in the creation of a thing, then um, it means so much more to us, I think. Yes. Yeah. It, it, well, it, you know what it brings to mind is um, Scott McCloud's book, Understanding Comics, yeah. where he talks yeah. about there's that that gutter between panels. Mm -hmm. You see a, a panel of a, a you know, mm -hmm. a, a man chasing another man with an axe. Mm -hmm. And then there's a gutter. And then there's a panel of this, the night skyline of the city and just the, the letters ah! yeah. coming out. Yeah. And you had to figure out what's going on in the gutter. And you're pretty sure. Yeah. I got him in, in the head yeah. with an axe. And I mean, that gutter can be the gap that David Kirby was teaching us about in that class at Florida State, you know, for sure. Yes. And, but also in, in, in McLeod's Understanding Comics, he says how he, he explains how um, like a simple stick figure, happy face character is oftentimes easier for us as readers to identify with or inhabit than a um realistic like a photorealistically drawn like character you know because that's like a wall we can't enter and um yes. and that's something i always keep in mind when i'm writing I, I unless i'm really pressed to do it i hardly ever describe my um characters such that you could draw a picture of them you know interesting interesting yeah. so keep them abstract enough that the yeah. reader can maybe inhabit that person exactly because i mean you don't know if in your readers are going to be male female they're going to be all different cultures and um and i don't want anybody to be excluded you know i want everybody yeah. to be able to participate if, if i can you know yes do you think that's why um uh, I don't know. Did, did the did the first person? I don't know if this was a at all a surprise to you. You'd probably read plenty of first person narratives, but the fact that this is first person and that the damn keeper never names himself and no one else names him, and yeah. and also we'll talk about Lons in a minute. First person, and you don't know until the very end even what the narrator's name is. Yeah. But uh, I guess maybe that helps you to inhabit that character. I, that's a that's a really good point. I think it does. Like in the first place I ever saw that was James Welch's Winter in the Blood. He does that. He has a whole novel where the character doesn't have a name. And wow. I didn't even realize it till somebody said it in class or something, you know, and and I love the way it hits that I can completely um, identify with and inhabit a character and only realize later that they don't have a name. You know, I really like that dynamic a lot. Yes, yes. You know, you'd mentioned earlier that the stories in, in part, maybe the story of water pressing up against the dam. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the very first things the guy, the narrator says is the most important part of my job is to maintain a constant pond level. Yeah. yeah. Right. And that's what you have to do with the dam, right? He lowers yeah. the water level every night and then it, he lets it build back up. But yeah. my sense from that, just that sentence alone is I've got to maintain control. I've yeah. got to keep, I've got to keep my head level and every step of the way, like every every page, you see some note about his wife ignoring him, not loving him anymore, betraying yeah. him. And I, I just get the sense he's, he's you know, if this goes on much longer, he's going to crack and he knows it. Yeah. And if he cracks, the whole, literally the city downstream could be in danger. Yeah, no, for sure. And also, on that, I think on the second page of the story, when he's talking about the dam, he says, this, this is where I live and this is what I think. A dam is an unnatural thing, like a diaphragm, you know. Yes. Um, and of course, <laughs> conception is the the thing occupying every waking moment. And I think it's like the goggles he wears too. Like everything he explains, it's like you can almost 
like not, not always, I think probably 75% of the time you can ascribe some um, fertility or conception like motif or something to it, you know, um, like yeah. with Easter with all the eggs, you know, um, and um, it's, it's, I love it when a theme like that or a compulsion permeates the whole story and just won't quit bubbling up you know that's really yeah. fun for me oh oh yeah yeah and you know, he's completely eaten up with his inability to conceive a child yeah. or his wife's ab abandoning he sees her as abandoning him because yeah. of that i always wonder if this story was part of the um part of where king of the hill comes from hank hill and his narrow urethra you know <laughs> i wonder, always wonder if there's like a line of influence you know <laughs> nice that's great what tell me what do you think about the title why call this the prophet from jupiter because yeah archie simpson the titular prophet from jupiter is a fairly he's he's significant but he's certainly not yeah. the main character um mm -hmm. he has an important a sad moment at the end where he's trying to rescue shithead the dog mm -hmm who's who broke through the ice and he rescues the dog but then he snaps the ice snaps from under him he drops in the water yeah. and he's gone while his wife and his five sons are up on a bridge screaming and trying to you know holding out their arms for him it's a terrible yeah. moment yeah. but why call it that when he's not the main character um i mean there i guess i can think of two reasons the first reason is to get a tent to get eyes on your story you have to give it a hooky title you know yeah. and i think that's why i came to the story initially i was like really a prophet from jupiter in this um literary annual you know of course i'm going to read that but you know secondly um i think that the narrator the dam keeper is fascinated with the prophet from jupiter because the prophet from jupiter has no uncertainty in his life and he does exhibit heroism at the end even at the cost of sacrificing himself and yeah. I think the prophet from Jupiter, you know, who knows if he's on track or not, but he's found happiness, you know, and, and what, what more can we ask for? And this guy, this dam keeper, this narrator, he has not found happiness. He is still feeling around in the dark for what's going to complete him or what's going to not make him sad anyways, you know, but yeah. the prophet from Jupiter has found it. And also, I guess we can't look away from the fact that the prophet of Jupiter has five kids and the, the yes. dam keeper has none, you know? Yes. Yes. So he's, he's got the virility thing. He's, he says his uh, kind of brags about his wife saying his wife smells yeah. like good earth, yeah. which is a weird thing to say about your beloved, but I, you know, I guess it works for the guy. <laughs> yeah. You um, don't want to, you don't want to write that in a birthday card. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and and but but the the narrator has a moment at the end it, it gets very strange where um you know he meanders through most of the story and i think if you were to compare like the length of sentences mm. at least the sound of it it seems like it gets faster paced toward the end yeah. to me maybe shorter sentences or something but he has this moment of prophecy at the end where he sees these characters these these people he's known or heard of like old man bill burdett who was one yeah. of the who who was one of the guys there at the at the you know in yuri at the beginning uh who mm -hmm. kind of left his old truck down there in the in the water even mm -hmm. though it was brand new it's like mm -hmm. yeah he you, you he has he's he kind of comes up there's this giant catfish that's the size of a man mm -hmm. that's down there that, that everyone knows about and yeah. um and and the prophet of jupiter and his family is there at the end so so i guess the yeah. the dam keeper is sort of a prophet as well in a sense at the very end yeah well i mean either that or tony early is poking fun at not poking fun but just trying to illustrate or kind of dramatize how um western literature is basically eschatological it follows yeah. like the biblical pattern where it all reaches a rapturous moment at the end you know and yeah. in that long sentence you're talking about at the end it's it's really an inline list with semicolons like as bullet points you know um and that's that always reminds me of the last like little bit the last 
I don't know, probably 800 words, 1200 words of Brett Easton Ellis's Lunar Park, where um, it just like launches into this lyrical thing, just like this at the end of Tony Early's story. And um, I am so, so drawn to those kind of endings. It's like that Flannery O'Connor, everything that rises must converge, you know, and I, I totally agree with that. I don't, I don't like endings to peter out or I don't, I don't ever want to turn the page and realize oh the story went over i didn't clock it you know that makes me so sad uh, like you know when i listen to an audiobook um you can almost always identify when you're in the last paragraph because the tone and delivery of the voice actors um reading changes pitch a little bit they get yeah. like more final with it and some some yeah. productions even put like a really distant instrumental thing behind it so you're like mm -hmm. writing that music up you're swelling with it at the yep. end and i you know we can't do that in prose but we do have rhythm and we do have like Tony Early, we have um, a colon with a lot of semicolons and everything coming together at once. You know, yeah. we, we can achieve that same thing with just prose, I think. Yeah, yeah. I've heard many a song leader in church at the last verse of a hymn, mm -hmm. that last bar, basically, they slow yeah. it down and yeah. you know, oh, well, we're not going to sing any more verses. They yeah. just concluded it because there's a little yeah. bit of a, it's not dramatic but you completely get the signal you know we're slowing it down and i know exactly what you're talking about with that ending that last paragraph um yeah i i think about um uh paul tremblay's uh uh the cabin the cabin at the end of the world that's exactly how the narrator did yeah. that last yeah. harrowing paragraph where you realize you know where the, where the characters realize where they stand with the the terrible decision that that has been forced on them yeah, yeah. Let me ask you, do you think that this is a ghost story? Because there is so much of a haunting of the past, mm -hmm. haunting of Elizabeth. Uh, mm -hmm. And and they actually see some some people talk about the ghosts of the you know yeah. generation yeah. or two back. You know, I would say that it it's um it's a southern story. And I think southern mm -hmm. stories 90% of the time are ghost stories, you know. Um wow. and um so I think by default it kind of is a ghost story. Yes. We don't get the same kind of spectral, you know, appearances that we get in other ghost stories, but you're right, the the past is the past isn't gone. And I think that's that's the feeling you get in the south is that the past like it's not gone at all. It's still here with us, you know. Um yeah. um let's see. It's like there's that Shenandoah song. What is it? Sunday in the South is that what it's called where this kid is up in the barber chair in his little hometown and he says um all the old people hanging around the barber shop they still smell smell the powder burning and they probably always will from the confederate from the yeah. the civil war you know that yeah. always hits me so hard because I think yes. I think that 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 to me just um compresses a whole South into a single line you know yeah. last thing I just wanted to ask quickly about this do you there's there's so much, especially as interjecting uh, commentary on his ex-wife mm -hmm. uh, into the narrative. Do you think of this as in some sense of stream of consciousness narrative? Is that is that pushing it too far? Because he really like he'll be in the middle of a sentence and he'll uh, and he'll just kind of jump over to his his the the thought of his wife eating away at him and it'll continue yeah. on with the narrative. Yeah, you know, reading a story, it's kind of like um, it's like you're watching you're you're watching a television. And like every like 30 seconds, somebody switches it to the other show. You're like watching three or four shows at once, you know? Yes, and I think that's how yes. his brain is working. Um, I don't know if I would quite call it stream of consciousness, just because I always adhere to Janet Broway's um, kind of, you know, thumbnail definition of stream of consciousness, which is it's the process of thinking as, you know, relayed or rendered on the page. Yeah. And, um, yes, but, yes. but, you know, to tell you the truth, both these stories I picked, they both walk right up to the edge of, 
some some sort of stream of conscious delivery but they don't to me they don't quite step over and that that's really my favorite way of writing actually yes yes yeah. do you have a, a favorite passage you wouldn't mind reading yeah. for us at, oh, man. Uh, the prophet gotta from get, jupiter gotta grab my specs here man um from my dam i've ca caught catfish that weighed 18 24 and 31 pounds just babies randy said the 31 pounder was big enough I think I scare him. I got my picture in the paper in Hendersonville holding up the fish. My beard is long and significant. The catfish looks wise. I mailed a copy to Elizabeth in Montesano. The new police chief drives up to the hurricane fence gate after Randy goes home and shines his spotlight on me. I don't even unbuckle my harness anymore. The mayor is not running for re-election. I will stay until inauguration day. The new police chief will live with Elizabeth and their child in the dam keeper's house. Randy's girlfriend is pregnant again and the house isn't big enough for three kids. Um, that's like, that's not all the threads in the story, but that's a lot of the threads coming together at once, you know? But I love that, like, I think other writers might've put coordinating conjunctions in there, you know, but although, though, yet, and to make to make it flow. But this is not a this, this is not a story about flow. This is a story trying to resist flow because you don't want the water to go over the dam. So therefore everything is like, it's not staccato. The sentences are really long, but it's, it's definitely like in jammed. It feels like a poetry move, like it's in jammed, you know? Yes. Ah, oh, that's terrific. I love that. Well, um, let's talk about um, Lawns by Mona yep. Simpson, um, set at the University of California, Berkeley, uh, about a, a young lady who's named Jenny. Tell us, uh, what, what do we need to know about the story? Oh, I guess there's a lot of trigger warnings, first of all. <laughs> uh, there, there is, absolutely. Yeah, I'll mention, yeah. I'll put something in the uh, uh, in, in the notes on the uh, description for the show. But um, yeah, there's definitely some content warning here. Yeah, it's, it's a it's a young woman. I presume she's 19. She could be 18, but she's just coming to college. She's a freshman, at, at, like you say. And and she's just trying to, she's, she wants to be part of the pack. You know, she wants to she wants to be normal. She, she and 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 as the story builds, we're like, why do you want to be normal so bad? And what we what we pick up from that is you haven't been normal, you know. So you you want to be normal, you haven't been normal. What happened? What do you think happened to make you not normal or whatever? And um, and as we slowly find out, her dad is has been um molesting her for her whole life basically, and that comes out probably about. 40% in the story, I suspect, maybe 35, somewhere around there. And of course it changes everything. And it's really ex not uh, extreme is the wrong word, but sudden when it happens. Um, and so then it's just about the fallout of this revelation and how it, um, what it does to her family, what it does to her relationships at college with her roommate, with her boyfriend, Glenn, her roommate is Lauren. And um, um, it's all kind of under the I want to say umbrella, but it's really more of a bookend story where it starts out with her. She steals mail. She's works in the mailroom. And then it kind of that's maintained once or twice throughout the story where she has to talk to police officers. And but then at the end, it comes back around to a steal just uh, to, to the mail stealing thing. And I love I love that every time I read this story, it ambushes me. I'm like, oh, we're back here because, you know, with stories, um, what I always tell my students is that um, stories so so often end where they began and the reason for that like they i mean we want to say it's because of circularity you know but i don't think that's quite it i mean no i'm not saying i don't subscribe to joseph campbell's monomyth you know the sun sets the sun rises all that stuff i i think that is the the pattern that our narratives follow here in the west but um i really think the reason that we often see stories ending where they begin is because when you show a character against the same backdrop you initially met them in then any change or development they have gone through is heightened you can see it better against the same backdrop you know and so 
we start out with her in the mailroom and then we end up with her in the mailroom, but she's different, you know, this, I mean, of course this has changed her, but um, it's, it's an uplifting to me. This is an uplifting ending. It's a terrible grind to get there because it's yeah. awful, awful stuff happening, but um, she's finally starting to figure out who she is at the end. I feel like she's becoming what she always wanted to be just part of the world. You know, I don't know if you remember the first time you read this, but did you see the, the big shocker coming? I did not see the big shocker coming um, when her father rents that hotel room. And then, you know, the, all, all the, I, I, I don't know if molestation is the right word. She kind of calls it an affair. Sometimes it seems like that's, I don't think that's the right word either. She's, incest she's, is incest is the wrong word. It's just yeah. badness, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, um, but no, I didn't. I did not see it coming. Yeah. And um, what's interesting is, I was teaching this story back in about oh one or oh two, and for some reason, my class was composed of there were nineteen students in, I believe, and I want to say fourteen of them at least were um working. Their degree was whatever degree you get to go into child protective services. Like somehow, wow. like their um advisor was funneling all their students to me or maybe keeping their class together. I'm not sure what was going on. Anyways, they were all in my class. And and when we read this story, they all to a person saw this coming 100% of the way, like from the- Wow. Because they, they, okay. they've encountered this stuff in their teaching and, and yeah. their coursework and everything. And so they knew immediately what was going on. And that really fascinates me. And it makes me wish that I had that kind of like sensitivity so I could possibly help people more or something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, looking back through it, yeah, I've read it three times now, and and on the, certainly on the third, you know, for, first time I read it, I'm, I'm so naive. I had no idea. And then you, she drops the bomb saying, yeah, I'm sleeping yeah. with my father. You don't yeah. just go and tell somebody that over dessert, you know, yeah. um, I don't know how to, and then, and then she, um, yeah, and then I go back and read it again. I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah, yeah, first time, the first interaction, he's crying because he's dropping her off at college. Yeah, I, you know what? I'd probably do that, dropping my daughter off at college yeah. too. And then the I second time she, yeah. she, yeah. you know, she next sex time, second time he's mentioned, she remembers him telling her that she didn't smell good, mm -hmm. and she slugged him for it. And like, like, yeah. what, what does that mean exactly? And then, uh, and then, yeah, when she shows up when he shows up in her dorm room mm. and, and he's just slumped over and she's just just kind of grossed out by yeah. him or just so disappointed with him. And yeah. he wants her to stay at the hotel room with him. And she doesn't want to, she wants to hang out with her friends mm. and stuff. And then when they actually get the, you know, you just get the sense that she's em, em, embarrassed of him. Well, that yeah. I, can, I can see that. That kind of makes, yeah. you know, that, that's yeah. kind of a stereotype. Yeah. Um, but then the further, the more you learn in the, in the hotel room scene, the more, yeah like gross it's getting until you finally she reveals that he's kind of assaulting her in this in this mm -hmm. hotel room yeah. but what's so very strange is that you have this this situation that it, you'd be hard pressed to find something more awful than what this this man is doing to his daughter mm -hmm. and yet the way she describes it she just goes she just kind of passes and she says i don't know it's like it's it's just so gross to her yeah. she just yeah. hates it and then she goes on talking about, you know, I mean, people would think my would say my dad's handsome. My mom certainly thinks he huh. he is. And she just kind of keeps going like like huh. she she doesn't realize how traumatizing this is, I guess, because she's always lived with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's been yeah. normalized within her life. Like she did. She she this was going on before she knew it was wrong, you know, so yeah. and it's been normalized. Um, But I do all, the, all those, those moments you're talking about, which in in retrospect are red flags that we should pick up on. That's just the way like um 
Shyamalan's The Sixth Sense works, you know, with the big yeah. reveal that Dr. Crow is dead, you know, and, yeah. and you go back and look at it and you're like, oh yeah, his wife wasn't talking about back to him. Oh yeah, he's wearing the same clothes all the time. All, all the little clues, you know, and it's wonderful to drop big bombs like that. But if you don't, if you haven't planted seeds, that's breaking the metaphor of bomb and seeds, but if you haven't yeah. planted things before, then it's useless. You know, it's just, it's out of left field. Um, you have to make it, if if you do it like that without anything planted, then it's a gimmick story that you just read once. But if you do it with stuff planted along the way, then it's something people can go back to again and again and work through it and just watch it unfold, you know? Yes. And, and also another, the biggest clue to me, yes, it's super creepy seeing the dad like petting the arm of that sweater and all, all the weird yeah, stuff that yeah. we should, we should pick up on. Yeah, but the yeah. big cue to me is that um, her diction, Jenny's diction level is completely locked in at 12 years old when her father started this, you know, yes. um, she, she talks to me, she does not talk like a freshman in college. She talks like a 12 year old, you know, yeah. that's yeah. right. That's right. It, it's, I, I, I kind of thought of it as a Valley girl kind of sound. I mean, she's, a, I guess from California, at least she's, yeah. she's, she's yeah. in school in California, but there's like comma splice after comma splice, yeah. you know, uh, it's, it is like, it is not normal, proper grammar. Yeah. It's extremely conversational. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it is it, a child's language. You're right about the comma splices, but they all work too, which is a weird thing. It, usually comma yeah. splices don't get a pass, but they all get a pass here, I feel like. Yes. Um, but also she she does things with tense, which I've never seen in any, any other story and all the stories I've read. Because she, she'll do a sentence that the first clause is past tense, the second clause is present tense, and then she'll come back to some weird kind of tense that's between those two. And and that just blows me away of it's almost like there's a sliding point of narration you know but i understand i mean the big umbrella is present tense and the reason that mona simpson had to keep it in present tense was she wanted that leaning over the cliff at the end like um i put the letter back in the box so i can get it like everyone else you know she wants that present tense moment right there and yes. it, where the story told in retrospect then if it was told 10 months later, then there would have to be some interpretive distance there. And she did not want that interpretive distance. She wanted us walking out of the mailroom with Jenny to come around and get her mail like everyone else, you know? Yes, yes, yeah. absolutely. It, yeah, it is fascinating how, well, I, I wonder who's she telling all this to? She, yeah. even, she even says at one point, there's just one time when she says, basically, that's why I'm telling you this, yeah. or she, yeah. she refers to the listener. Who do you, yeah. who do you think she's actually telling this to? And it, it must be over several sessions because you find out later yeah. in the narrative, it's not like they have like little marker breaks or something yeah. in the text, but, but you, you find out that, oh, well, I, I got called into the office and mm -hmm. the university cops there asking uh, around about people stealing, mm -hmm. like workers stealing mail. Mm -hmm. So, you yeah. know, this is happening over three or four times. So who, who do you think she's yeah. talking to? I think it's that that conceit we see so often in fiction where you do have like a Mike Hammer telling a little gritty PI story and he's you know, Mike Hammer is not going to a therapist and he's not talking to a bartender he's just yeah. like he's just like narrating in his head and I think that's that's what she's doing it's like she's giving herself narrative therapy almost um but um no I don't think there I don't think this is like a dramatic I don't think there's any kind of situation where she is actually relaying this story to someone because I, I get the sense that she's not going to go to seek help from a counselor you know or yeah. she said she's not initially anyways maybe she does later I don't know but um but I love the I love that conceit like you know with my heart is a chainsaw one of the questions I got early on in you know notes on it from friends and editors and stuff was um um so this little essay of Jade's seems to comment on that chapter you know like they like yeah. it's a final girl chapter followed by a final girl essay you know yes. um they would say who who is doing that who is arranging it is there an editor here 
And um, that I always insisted that we can never um, establish that. We can never know that because that's the magic of fiction, that this stuff is falling into place, you know? Um, yes. And I do like this. I mean, the stuff is curated. It has been curated and sequenced and put in this specific progression, you know, to achieve like an argument or a narrative or something. But um, I think pulling the curtain back and saying, oh, it's him, it's her, or it's them, whatever. I think that would break everything, you know? Interesting, interesting. So that's, you want to maintain that magic, um, yeah. that, that little bit of distance there. That that unexplainable thing, you know, like um, I used to be, and I guess I still am really into David Lynch films. And um, I, I started to notice from watching them over and over that David Lynch films always have a little like logical impossibility nestled somewhere in them that doesn't make any sense at all you know yeah, like yeah. um in lost highway when what the bill pullman character calls himself and that can't be happening you know yeah. um but um to me like in chainsaw or in this story lines where we don't really know who she's talking to or we don't know who's organizing this that is that logical impossibility that that's the thing that fundamentally makes no sense but i think those things that don't track that don't make sense they are like a they're like a um a cenobite hook coming out or hooking into somebody and pulling them into the story you know if if they can buy this one little logical inconsistency then the story has them and it can do with them what it wants to yeah i remember um the, someone on twitter um uh, complained to james gunn the director of guardians of the galaxy how can these people all be speaking like english they're from they're from all these different planets and races yeah. and and gunn's response was because movies yeah, oh, that's exactly. it. So yeah. and he was perfectly fine with that little bit of lack of realism or whatever, because yeah. it's it's a movie and it's fun and it's magic. You know, I, I love that trick in the hunt for Red October where um, um, Sean Connery's submarine captain and his second in command. No, no not his second in command. He's like state officer who's on the ship. Um, everybody's been talking Russian on the submarine and for the first like six minutes of the movie or something. And then the camera while this state officer this like representative of the government who is kind of like a i don't know a taskmaster on board or something the camera zooms in on him speaking russian and as he's speaking russian it becomes english and we zoom back out and everyone speaks english for the rest of the movie you know oh, that, wow that's the magic of movies you know yeah, and that's right and that's not just that's not local to just movies either i think we can do that kind of stuff in fiction as well you know yeah yeah and not get not become continuity cops and get too yeah. caught up in that because exactly. yeah it's, it's i i don't know that's not that's not a lot of fun no it's um, not um wh what do you think um what do you think Jenny's stealing of the mail does for the story? Because it is, it is just kind of such an odd thing, yeah. but it's, it's clearly, it's crucial. Yeah. Um, and it gives her a moment at the end, I think. Um, it does. I think to me on the very first page, you can see what it does. Let me see if I can get my glasses out. Um, tampering with the United States mail is a federal crime. I know. Listen, let me tell you, I know I got a summons in my mailbox to go to the employment office next Wednesday. Sure. I'm scared. What that does is this that's like one of the single most important things that all stories and novels need is a ticking clock you know we now have until yes. next wednesday and um and so what that mail thing does it kind of gives a dramatic scaffolding for for the rest of the story to hang pieces off of you know yeah. but but yeah stories without ticking clocks they just they float away from me i can't stay invested in them you know Wow. Yeah. That's a, that's funny. That's a, I was thinking maybe there, you know, I was thinking about the thematic use of it or, or whatever, but yeah, no, that's just a real practical thing. You need yeah. a narrative to make it exciting. And she, well, she's like in danger. You don't want her to get found yeah. out or, yeah. or you want her to stop doing, stop stealing people's cookies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in Prophet from Jupiter, it's also, it's a ticking clock. These are his last days. And he says yeah. that a few times I'm about to leave, you know, I'm, I'm on my way out. And so 
and uh, yeah, I think stories they they've got to have ticking clocks, you know. Yeah. Why do you think it was called lawns? What I mean, what yeah. what more banal word could you use to call to title a story? I agree. Um, I think the visual where we get lawns from. I mean, you can get it from a lot of places. Glenn is a lawnmower. Um her brother and Glenn both used to play in the backyard on the lawn. But um, I think where it comes from is Jenny standing in her mail room with all the um, the wall of post office boxes open. And she can see through those boxes, the stadium, the football stadium, yes, or yes. the field. And she sees all these little lawns, these little like, you know, lawns through there. And they're all the same, you know? And that is what she's wanted the whole story is to be, part of the world you know and yeah. to not be the weird girl you know yeah. and um and i mean lawns are also the i mean when you go to suburbia everybody it's like a competition who can have the neatest most manicured lawn and they all look the same you know and a little that's blue, what blue velvet there yeah a yeah. little blue velvet yeah, at the exactly. beginning there that's immediately what comes yeah. to mind when you say lawns yeah. is the yeah yeah that blue velvet shot sure. and I, so i think that's what it is i think for her lawns um signify like the sameness of suburbia how like when you go to any suburban block not any but most suburban blocks every house looks like the alien mother the mother from aliens came through and squeezed out house 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 and they're all yeah. the same you know but and that seems oppressive to us or weird but um to jenny that's so attractive you know she that's what she's wanted her whole life she doesn't want to be the the lawn with like rusted washing machines and an upside down toyota and a huge ridiculous flagpole she doesn't want she doesn't want everyone looking at her lawn she just wants to be able to drive by and say oh another lawn another lawn another lawn yeah 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 to, to be able to go around the to the front of the post office yeah. and get her mail like everyone else like um, everyone i else. think that's why she likes glenn so much uh, he's a good looking guy but we, you yep. really don't get any sense of any any other redeeming qualities that yep. and and the way she yep. describes their sex life is like yep. it's okay yep. but i think she yep. just he's just normal when she's having sex with him it's not about the sex it's about this is a normal thing kids my age do you know i, yep. I think that's, that's what it is for her and um and yeah, Glenn is nothing special, but he is special in that he's not her dad, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. One yeah. last thing about lines is, yeah, you can track um, like the profanity in the story. I think there's only, or the first cuss word, it might be the only cuss word. No, I think she says something later, but um, when they're going camping and um, like the yes. first time he really molests her. I mean, not really. He's done it before, but I don't know. Yeah. The first time it's serious. No, this, this this is actual sexual intercourse, yeah. penal penetration. It yeah. sounds like, yeah. yeah. But um, she finally uses some profanity there, and it it hits so hard when she says that, yeah. you know. And um, that I always, I wish people would do that. I wish they would conserve the profanity such that it actually has some um weight when it hits. You know, if yeah. if you just if you if you're cussing the whole way through, then it just becomes the the level, you know, and it's hard to have yeah. a spike when you when everything is like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and what follows that is her her uh acknowledging that he had me in the woods alone in yeah. this we were going camping. It's in a tent. He could have murdered me. It's a yeah. it's a pretty harrowing moment there. It really is. But she and realizes she, just yeah. how brutal this situation is. And, and but then she comes out of it and she's like nothing was ever the same he always spent twice as much on me as she did as he did on danny like she yeah. she uses this relationship or not relationship that's the wrong word she uses this um i don't know what you call it with her dad yeah to um she leverages it so she can get more stuff you know yeah. um, she, yeah, she which, says after that moment she was the one calling 
the shots, yeah, exactly. which, which I don't think is, in my opinion, is not fully expressing what's going on in this dynamic, yeah. but oh, she's able no. to get whatever she wants, expensive yeah. clothes, yeah. Um, you know, she's going away to college and she, yeah. you know, he's, he's, and then he becomes just more and more pathetic in a way um, as they go in, you know, he's crying because he knows yeah. he even says that this over the phone, we're never going to end up, we're not going to end up together, are we? And it's just like just so bizarre and disgusting. And it just yeah. seems so, so accurate know, for someone yeah. who's, who's doing that. It totally does. And I don't, I mean, she's not like, I know, evil or manipulative for, um, for asking for more or whatever. It's just like, she's in a the worst situation and yeah. she, in her like kid way is kind of making the most of it, you know? Um, yeah, it's like yeah. self-defense almost. It feels yeah. like. She has a, there's a description in here where the, she seems to believe that as her father is to her, maybe she is to Glenn yeah. and yeah. she, and she, I think in some way can live with them splitting up toward yeah. the end because she doesn't want to infect, or she's afraid she will infect his life in some way. It's yeah. just, it's just terribly sad that she would see herself. And then there's this beautiful yeah. scene with Lauren, her roommate, mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. finally drags her out to a, a public school and pushes her like her face up against a fence is kind of the way it's described. It says, look at those eight-year-old kids. Look at those eight-year-old girls. If what one of them, her father is abusing her the way your father abused you now that now that she's told her roommate what was going on. How can you blame that child? Mm -hmm. If you could forgive that child for what her father had done to yeah. was doing to her, can't you forgive yourself? And it yeah. seems to be a watershed moment where now she's she's able to, I think Jenny's able to grapple with the situation a little bit more. And it's little, hard to read, but it's also very beautiful at the same time. Yeah, no, it really is. Um and it's kind of interesting because early on she's talking about the letters she snipes from the her job and reads and she finds out these other kids from her high school have these complicated intertwined lives and then in that moment her and lauren life, her and lauren's life are intertwining in the same way and they're helping each other you know yes. and so she's on the she's becoming what she always wanted to be you know not not the outsider but the part of normal the, kid yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely well, um, I, I want to sh shift gears a little bit and talk about yeah. how these two stories impacted your own work. I think, you know, it's talking, I don't know about my, all my work, but my heart is a chainsaw. Anyways, I feel like this could be one place where Jade starts. Um, yes. Page 93 on this copy I have. Um, this is, let's see, the father is molesting Jenny and she's young and Danny, the brother, is in the backyard. Like he's been excluded from the house, of course. Um mm -hmm. And Danny just went and got his glove and baseball from the closet and he'd go and throw it against the house, against the outside wall in the driveway. I'd be in my room. I'd be like dead. I'd be wood telling myself it doesn't count. No one has to know. I'll say I'm still a virgin. It's not really happening to me. I'm dead. I'm blank. I'm just letting time stop and pass. Yeah. And then I'd hear the sock of the ball in the mitt and the slam of the screen door. And I knew it was true. It was really happening. Um, That's like Jade's dilemma. That's why she's, that's why Jade thinks she could never be a final girl, you know, because um, her father is some similar to this dude. He's, possibly worse than this dude um but i don't know if they, i don't know if it's really a spectrum of badness i think it's just terrible <laughs> you know once you step over a line so it's, it's a black terrible. hole yeah. yeah gravity well of of, of yeah. evil yeah yeah for sure um but i i feel like i mean i wonder if that's not where i got the idea for because i'm always thinking about final girls and i was back when i was reading this for the first time as well and that interested me like um could could Jenny here be a final girl? You know, and um, um, of yeah. course I can't write can't write about Jenny, but I can write about Jade. You know, interesting. Um, wow. And as for a prophet from Jupiter, 
I feel like I stole Uri and um, this whole North Carolina town and just put it 8,000 feet up the mountain in, yeah. in Idaho, you know? Yes, yeah. I even have the, let me think. I don't know if it's in Chainsaw or not. It's in the later books, the, the next two books. Um, um, definitely, I say definitely. I'm not sure it's in Reaper. It might be in Reaper. Um, this, 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 all, all these three novels like merged together in my head and I can't tell yeah. what goes where. But um, that big fish, that catfish floating like a Zeppelin down Main Street, you know, that that's in, that's one of my favorite images I've ever read in anything. And yeah. I've never, I don't think I'll ever shake that image. And I, I used to, in a lot of my short stories I was writing in the late 90s, I would always find a way to have a dam and a giant catfish. You know, a lot of them, a lot of oh, them, wow. a lot of them would have that. And it never really quite worked. I don't know if they got published or not, but um, I was finally able to do a version of that with Drown Town and yeah. Indian Lake and Proof Rock and all that. So, yeah. And, you know, just Tony Early's way of um, having so much, having more going on the page than should be going on on the page, you know, like yes. his, his delivery is denser and it takes some unpacking. And um, I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that he's given me enough respect to that I can do that. You know, he didn't yes, have to as, like, a, as a reader. Yes, yeah, that's right. He didn't, he didn't have to hold a spoon and give me like, here comes the airplane, put it in my mouth. You know, he can like yes. tell me something and I can, if I apply myself, I can make sense of it. And that's my favorite kind of reading. Yes. And I, I guess that, yeah, these images and, and uh, yeah, the, the giant catfish un, under the deep under the water and, and having a town inundated uh, and the descriptions of that town just, I guess, kind of mold in your subconscious for, for a long, uh, for decades, really, and, and have in some ways are kind of uh, maybe a prefiguring of, of some things we see in Drown Town. Oh, and you know, I guess with Prophet, you know, I say Winter in the Blood does the no name narrator thing as well, but I read, I read this story before I read Winter in the Blood, you know, so it, it it could have been where that starts for me, yeah. you know, and mongrels, the, the main character has no name, you know. But. Oh, oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. We I I kept looking for him if they'd ever named a character yeah. there and, and 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 he never gets a name. Yeah, just just like the dam keeper, he's the journalist, he's the the yep. nephew, he's the criminal, he's everything, you know. Yeah. Now, without asking you what the name is, yeah. do you know what the the mongrels character's name is? You know, from talking to um, TV outfits about mongrels a lot, I have had to give them a name. Yeah, I don't know if it'll stick, but I have had to give them a name because it's hard to talk about someone if they don't have a name. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But but in terms of writing it, you never never no. came up with a name that you just kept to yourself. Wow. But I, it wasn't on purpose either. Uh, I got about 80 pages into it and I realized <laughs> he didn't have a name. And so I thought, well, I'll let Darren say his name. But then Darren never would say his name. And so it just, wow. he never got he never got it, you know? Yes. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I do wonder, just because they, the, both of these stories, Lawns and the Prophet from Jupiter, are first person, um, they're both first person present tense, I believe, and they are so conversational in tone. They're both they're both so so strong and dis and distinct in that way. Uh, did that have an impact on uh, your sense of POV? I mean, I know that uh, I was looking at some of your novels, uh, even in your novels, uh, it came from Del Rio, first person. Uh, uh, My heart is a chainsaw, and don't for the reaper, third you know third person, uh, and even um, not for nothing, second person novel and then if you pick up the uh three miles past there's three novellas each one in in one of the the points of view um it was did you pick up anything or do you think these had an impact on your sense of of, of uh pov they definitely did and there's also the um 
like the Greek chorus or the royal first person, the we, you know, and I love doing that as well. And it's funny because My Heart is a Chainsaw really comes from me reading and reading Jeffrey Eugenides' The Virgin Suicides, which uses that kind of Greek chorus delivery. And I wanted to do that. And the first drafts of what became My Heart is a Chainsaw are royal first person. Um, and also that it came from Del Rio you head up. Um, it actually is me trying to do um, Philip K. Dick's Radio Free Albemuth novel, where he has a thing in the middle of that novel, a sentence ends at the end of a chapter and you think, oh, this is a type, this is a misprint, you know, I've got yeah. a rare copy or something. And it picks up like after a blank page on the next chapter, it picks up in a, the second half of a different sentence from a different character, you know, and oh, wow. that blows me away. So I tried to do something similar and it came from Del Rio. And yeah, I am always um, poking and prodding at what's possible with, um, I don't know, point of view or distance or whatever we're going to call it, you know? Um, yeah. And tell you the truth, my default setting is second person. That's my favorite. That's my really, natural, that's my natural voice to tell a story in a second person. All my, not all, but when I write down story ideas, they're all, you're in a room. There's, um, you know, there's a window. You think somebody's watching you. What are you going to do? Like that, all my story ideas are you, you, you. And I have to yeah, change yeah. them because um, the audience doesn't tolerate second person very well. They, yeah, I mean, it sounds to me, I, I associate second person with EC Comics, um, yeah. you know, with with just that you come into the room and you yeah. go and, open, you know, look through the window and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I was going to ask you, I mean, I, I know that you, you describe yourself as a, a, a pantser, not a plotter. Mm -hmm. uh, you sit down and start writing. Does a... Um, I mean, how do you choose immediately? I mean, if you default to second person, that's cool. How, how do you choose, though, if you're going to switch it to first or third person or stick with second? Do you feel like maybe each person has a, each one of these POVs has a natural vibe to it and and you know what kind of emotion you want to evoke? And so there's a, a, a person that that lines up or, or do you maybe a little more circumspect and think about what do I want to try to pull off this time? It's more about what is the expositional burden of this story, you know, like with um, the prophet from Jupiter, Jupiter, what the what this um, location, you know, you called it, what'd you call it, geobiography or something? Yeah, it's like a geobiography. Yeah, thing. like, so that needs texture and layers. It needs the history of this town. And, and the reader is not going to tolerate a third person delivery where the story stops to say, and then this happened, and then this happened, that's, that's super boring. But if it's um, relayed by a character, then you can go into those layers and give that past. And um, But at the same time, if you're doing an international thriller where you're in Paris and Istanbul and Antarctica all over the place, you're probably gonna go third person because you need to be able to flip, 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 you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And um, second person is, a, it's, it's more malleable and you know within second person or maybe besides second person there's also dramatic monologue which i love using dramatic monologue it's when one yeah. character in the story is speaking to another and it looks on the surface like second person but there's usually a reveal that you you realize it's oh it's somebody talking in the story yeah. you know yeah. and i love i love to graduate from second person to i mean from dramatic monologue to second person i, lo I love that little shuffle um and also present second person works best if it's um present tense as kind of bound by future tense. I feel like if you start future tense and then slide into present tense and then graduate again at the end of future tense, second person seems to just function a lot better like that to me. Yeah. And also in second person, and I'm, I think I messed this up and not for nothing, um, <laughs> giving the character a name is usually a mistake, I think. Wow, because really? It's like that Scott McCloud thing. You want the character to yeah. just have a blank smiley face, you know? Yeah, yeah, oh, that's amazing. Um, 
Let me see. There's just a couple of other. Well, I, I did want to ask you, I don't know if you have any, any more thoughts on place as character. So clearly, like Lake Glen is is a, is is a character. There's a lot of things going on in it. I feel like there's a sense of this, um, you know, it's moving on, but there is a real sense of loss of what it used to yeah. be. Um, and then, I, I, you know, all of um, uh, Proof Rock. And Indian Lake, uh, it, it has a character to it. Do you think that's something you picked up out of, maybe out of Prophet from Jupiter? It could, it, yeah, it could very well be that uh, the Prophet of Jupiter is kind of where that all distilled for me. But I would like to say that I learned it there, but I think I didn't actually learn it until about 2018, you know, which is wow. many, many, many years later. Um, yeah. I always I always fancied myself as someday becoming um, a writer kind of following Kafka's ethos or what is that movie um Joe versus a volcano that Tom Hanks movie yeah. where the backdrop is just like this industrial gray space that is it's nameless faceless characterless yeah. it doesn't matter you know yes. or like yes. what's that Nicole Kidman movie dog dog dogville where the whole set is like masking tape on a stage you know and oh, wow. I love that so much that is yeah. So, yeah. so compelling to me it's it's like a trick you would see Robert Coover or somebody use um and um I, I love 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 it um but let's see, after I, after I wrote Mongrels and Mapping the Interior, I needed to do another novel. And so I wrote two novels, actually. I wrote American Neanderthal, or Neanderthal, how you're supposed to say it, and, um, and um, Texas is Burning. And um, Texas is Burning, I wanted to write it about a, like a down-as-luck detective trying to solve a serial killer thing. And I wanted to put it against that Kafka backdrop, just a gray cityscape. And but I got about 110, 120 pages into that novel, and it was like trying to push a boulder uphill, which is not how novel writing is for me. Novel writing is usually I'm on top of the boulder and we're just going really fast downhill, yeah. you know, and I'm just trying not yeah. to fall off. But, and I was like, what is going on here? And so I look at the conflict and that was built all right. And the characters were built all right. And I, I thought, well, maybe something's broken that I can't see. And so previously I had said yes to an invitation to a book festival in my hometown of Midland, Texas. And so while I was in this dilemma of what's wrong with this novel, I went down there to Midland to participate in this festival for three or four days. And while I was being kind of chauffeured around from this venue to that venue in the back of cars, I would look out and see Midland passing by. And I realized this is the backdrop, you know, this is where this novel needs to take place. And, yes. and so I, went, I hustled home and rewrote that novel with Midland as a character and the yeah. novel just told itself. And um. And I never considered myself a place writer. I kind of always had looked down on place writing. I don't know why. I had some prejudice against it. But that book was where I finally realized that place is super important as a character. You know, and that became that became uh, uh, growing up dead in Texas. Then no, 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 Texas is burning. Never got published. It's just sitting. Ah, oh, that's why. Okay, that's yeah. it. Yeah. No, growing up dead in Texas. I wrote that in two thousand and eight. I think it was. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. I. I had just moved to Colorado in my first graduate workshop, like previously teaching at Texas Tech for eight years, every graduate workshop I had the first day, I would say next 15, 16 weeks, y'all write the novel. If you don't, you fail the class. And so everybody wow. would work and write a novel. Yeah. When I came to, um, to Colorado, I told my class that and like six, like 13 hands went up, you know, and I'm um, 13 students. And they're like, well, we got other stuff to do. And, you know, how can we possibly write a novel and all? And they just kept arguing and arguing. And I finally said, you know what? I'll make you a deal. Um, I'll start a novel this afternoon. If I'm wow. not, I'm not done with it by the end of the semester, then y'all are all released from this. You don't have to do it. And um, and so I went home that night 
and I didn't have any novel ideas. I hadn't been planning on writing a novel, which is why that character is named Stephen Graham Jones and why he lives in my old houses because I wasn't making stuff up, you know. <laughs> um, and I wrote it. I wrote it over the course of the semester, you know. And um, wow, that's how that happened. But I, I guess I didn't come back to Texas until Texas is Burning. It's also set in Midland, and yeah. And also, I just came back there again to La Mesa, which is you know an hour and a half away, two hours away from Midland. Um with I was a teenage slasher set in and that's actually past tense instead of present tense I'm I was I didn't realize when I was writing Only Good Indians and My Heart is a Chainsaw that I was doing present tense I was just writing you know I don't huh. I don't I don't like like strategize tenses I just whatever yeah. happens happens and I try to try to stick with it and sometimes I have to go back and change everything which is a heck of a rewrite but um I I would see like reviews and stuff and people would say this is weird present tense and I would think it's not weird to me. It's just what I do. But and so with I was a teenage slasher, I realized that I needed to um, make sure I still had past tense muscles, you know. Yes, yes. And and I was a teenage slasher, I think was just announced. This is yep. a, an upcoming novel. Yep. Uh, are we likely to see it in 2023? Any idea? No, not 2023, probably 20, if I had to guess 2024. Right. Very good. Well, we have that to look forward to. Yeah. Uh, well, as we uh, start to wrap this up, a few other questions for you uh, quickly. I, I, I do have to ask about this. Um, you know, clearly, you know, we see in a number of your stories, the relationship between husband and wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, and then in, in, in an often strained relationship, a relationship between a parent and a child, uh, we'll, we'll figure into a lot of your stories, uh, but specifically uh, uncles, uncles are a big deal in a lot of your stories. What, yeah. what do you think is behind that? Probably just that um, growing up, I had a whole lot of like different um, fathers, stepfathers and, and all that. And but my uncles, two of my uncles were always a constant. My mom's brothers, they were always like around. Like one of those uncles is the one who turned me, who gave me access to all his paperbacks when I was 11 or 12 years old. And that just changed my life forever. Wow. And the other one, I spent so many years trying to be him. I probably still am trying to be him. You know, um, just the way he dresses, the way he interacts with people, the way he tells stories and everything. Yeah. So, um, yeah, uncles in my life have been hugely formative, and so I think it's kind of just natural that they kind of percolate up in my my fiction. Yeah. You know, they seem to be a, a frequently a source of truth and a source of stories. Yeah. Uh, in yeah, your uh, in your tales. Yeah. I mean, their uncles are big liars, as far as I know. You know. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, and and yet lies can contain truths that can't be told in other ways, right? And that's exactly. fiction, I, I suppose. Like, like, like Mongol says, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, one other source of um, I think about you know this whole this whole conversations about these two stories that were a uh, source of inspiration, but another source of inspiration and mentorship for you that you've mentioned is Joe Lansdale. Yeah, he's he's been a big deal in 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 your career, hasn't he? He really has. You know, I first met Joe in 2002 down in Austin, Texas. We were both on a panel for Texas Book Festival, I think it was, and it was a Conan the Barbarian panel. I was so thrilled to be on it. And um, at that time, I had not read Joe Lansdale, but uh, I was sitting up there beside him at the tall table and everybody's, the crowd's all out there. And in the Q&A period, somebody raised their hand and they said, Joe, Joe, um, what genre do you write in without, what genre do you write in without skipping a beat? He said, I write in the Joe R. Lansdale genre next, you know, and um, yes. yeah. and I realized that's who I want to be, you know, I don't, I, I mean, yes, I love horror, but I also love science fiction, fantasy, literary, crime, thriller, um, yes. and short stories, flash fiction, I love it all, I'm just excited about it all, and I don't want to be limited to only this shelf, this genre, I want to, um, 
write Stephen Graham Jones fiction and have that be enough, you know? So yeah, Joe has been my model since, since that point. And I've read, I don't know if I've, I think he's probably got 60 novels or so by now. I don't think I've read every single one of them, but I bet I've read 50 of them anyways. Wow. Wow. It's great that uh, just to see him now, even even today, you know, uh, on Twitter, not that you need anyone to champion you at this point, but he's still championing your work. um, And that's, that's really cool. No, he's so kind. And he is such a, when you talk to that dude, he can remember like every comic book he's read, every Edgar Rice Burroughs novel. He just has this amazing um recall of story you know Um, the same way like a musician like a guitarist will know have this great vocabulary of licks from all these other places you know that's how that's how joe is with with fiction with storytelling and it's really really amazing i I don't i don't have anything near to that but i'm really (laughs) i'm always so impressed when i talk to him that's so cool um i I did also want to ask you you know we've had um um you know obviously you're 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 you know, keeping the pulse of in, indigenous arts here in, in the U.S. And, um, you know, this last year we've had, you know, Earth Divers has been an enormous hit. Your comic book, like going into second printings, I don't know if that's normal or typical. I don't think it is. Um, Reservation Dogs has been a huge hit. It's critically and popularly acclaimed. And then that Predator film, Prey, uh, was a was a big hit. I'm uh, kind of surprised it didn't go to theaters because it was it was terrific. Is yeah. this um is, is are we having a moment or do you think this is a a, a movement? What do you think's going on? Why so much um, uh, interest in 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 Native American representation in pop culture specifically right now? Um, you know, I wonder. To me, it doesn't necessarily feel like an interest in representation. It feels like um we kicked the door open and ran into the room and we're not leaving, you know, like <laughs> we're, we're not asking if we can be here. We just are here, you know? Um, and, but it's for who kicked that door open. Yeah. That's the question. Um, Rebecca Roanhorse maybe with trail of lightning, like what she did with that book was she said, you know, I'm not going to go the usual route of um, native fiction. I'm just going to go straight to the market because native fiction has always percolated up through the university. You know, if yeah. it makes it into an, into the enough, onto enough desktops and enough classrooms, then it gets enough momentum that it kind of goes wide and has a long, long legs and a long life. But um, I feel like Rebecca Runhorse was like, that model is outdated and we don't need it anymore. And so she just went straight with this wonderful novel, Trail of Lightning. And um, I think, she, I mean, to tell you the truth, I feel like we owe a lot to get out as well in 2016, I guess that was. I feel like 2016 um, told the world that this this weird genre stuff that it's always been able to ignore is actually in conversation with the world, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and then Victor Laval's Bow to Black Tom reinforced that like very shortly after. And I feel like that kind of pushed the door open a little bit. And then Rebecca Roanhorse came with Trail of Lightning and opened up a little more. And also for the longest time in um, Native Lit, we had had um, basically like one person, one representative, you know, and and that went away and um instead of one person we now have just a whole horde of us you know and we're out there doing stuff and um proven that we don't have to tell the stories that um the market or the critical establishment wants us to tell we don't have to do things coming out of the oral tradition we don't have to always be dropping tidbits of our language in we don't have to be dealing with the politics of identity or with repatriation or history massacres. We can just tell fun stories about elves, about Spider-Man, about whatever we want to, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. and I think it's, I don't think we're going away either. I think there's more and more of us coming up. I actually feel like I'm kind of part of the older generation who will probably be eclipsed soon as it should be, wow. you know? Wow. I'm, 
it's also really cool to see, uh, you know, like uh, the, the the voice actors that are chosen for some of your books, at least. Um, you know, uh, Charlotte Flight, when she did yeah. the the backbone of the world, and she's just uh, terrific in that. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Sean Taylor Corbett, I believe I'm getting his yeah. name right, who did um, the Only Good Indians. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and then I think, uh, I think it was the first um, Blackfeet novel voice acted by a Blackfeet themselves. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and it's 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 great to to see. Uh, I I just kind of get the sense that you're helping mm-hmm. to build up that that whole talent base. Hopefully, um, man. I mean, I do like what you want to do when you wander into the house of fiction is work on it and make it strong so it can last through the generations. You know, and that's that's yes. what I'm trying to do. I want to make it better and better. But part of that is not being an idiot myself and messing up in some way that like erases everything I've done and, and messes up the road for other people, you know? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, last couple of questions here. Yeah. Um, uh, I have a, a, a little, a literary mystery related to a dedication. Yeah. Your novel, um, let me pull this up here. Your novel, it came from Del Rio, published in 2010, was dedicated to Jory Gray. Mm-hmm. The ebook collection of the ones that got away, also published in 2010, is dedicated to Jory Gray. Mm-hmm. Now, the print edition was dedicated to Detective Bruisman. Mm-hmm. Um, both are characters in the novels Gospel of Z and Not for Nothing, respectively. Mm-hmm. Neither of these books would even be published until 2014. So they're dedicated to fictional characters who wouldn't, I don't think, would see the light of day for at least four years. Kind of what can you shed any light on this the strange occurrence here? It happens in more books than that. Um, a lot of my books have a secondary dedication to one of my characters. Um, sometimes it's an existing character. Sometimes it's a character who has not been published yet. Um, and actually, sometimes I think I've dedicated one or two novels to um, um, June Morrissey from Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine, because she's one of my favorite characters in the whole world. Um, oh, wow. But um, the reason that Jory Gray ended up in both those books is because I didn't think anyone was ever going to publish Del Rio, because it's it's a bunny-headed zombie novel set down on the border and it, yeah. i mean it's it's a weird book you know for and sure great. i love that that artwork there oh that's one of my that's, yeah. that's my second favorite cover i've ever had i think it's beautiful it's, it's amazing yeah um but so i i had like when i finished it i went back into the dedication and i'd already written gospel of z and i didn't think anybody was going to publish it either but i wanted to still have jory gray see the light of day in some way so i dedicated that book to him and then um um Prime Books got Sean Wallace at Prime Books got hold of me and want to do a collection. And um, so I dedicated that to Jory Gray because I thought I've got to get him on the shelf somehow. And but then <laughs> after after it was coming out, then um, Trapdoor Books here in Colorado, who doesn't exist anymore, they got hold of me and said, we want to publish a novel. And so I gave them that. But I have a rule about dedications that once I do a dedication, I can't change it or else something bad will happen to that person. You know, it's a superstition. And I'm oh, wow. And even though Jory Gray is not real, I still couldn't change it. You know, I don't want anything bad to happen to him. So that's why it ended up kind of doubling up for Jory, you know? Nice. That's awesome. Thank you. And the last thing I'll ask you for is, can you tell, uh, I've heard you talk about it one other time, and it's Mm -hmm. amazing to me, the story about wrestling a steer to the ground. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, yeah, I was, let's see, I was at basketball practice my sophomore year in high school and um, just, you know, do running baselines whatever we were doing you know I'm all sweaty and then somebody crashes the door open at the end of the gym and says Steven Steven come here and so I had to go with them and my one of my I had steers back then one of my steers had broke loose and um 
and it was running all over the countryside causing all kinds of havoc it was i was i mean your steer is supposed to be a show steer it's supposed to be like quite tame and nice my steers were never tame and nice they were always like destruct they were like the tasmanian devil you know um and so i jumped in my truck raced home i was only about two miles from the school and um sure enough i could see a cloud of dust out there my my steer just causing all kinds of havoc and and so i ran out and what i thought its path was going to be and sure enough it thundered past me and um, I took a couple of loping steps, uh, still in my basketball clothes, and I reached out, I dove out, and I grabbed onto its tail, and it drugged me for probably 15 minutes, and we went through so many fences and across so many people's properties. We're, we lived in the country, um, and yeah. so there would be like a half mile between each house, and we went through a lot of yards and tore up a lot of stuff, and I was bleeding and everything, and um, but finally, that steer got tired of dragging me. I was extra weight, and it stood still. And and then I was able to lead it back to water because that's what it wanted worst. And um, but to me, that's what riding always is. Is like people ask me, how do you like how do you get inspired or for novels? And I never feel inspired. I feel compelled, really. But um, what I do is I just stand around in my head, and um, things are rushing past me, and sometimes I'll see something coming like a dim form through the darkness. I'll hear it. And if I get my steps just right, I can jump out and grab onto its tail and I can ride whatever that is, that novel, for until it, until it throws me, until I roll off into the grass and the thorns and everything. And that's a novel, you know? So yeah. um, I don't like try to use muscles or luck or anything to write novels. I just like wait around for until I can time it right to grab onto one of these ideas jamming past, you know? That's amazing. Well, thank you for spending so much time with me on this call. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah. Just want to remind everybody, Earth Divers is a continuing comic book. Uh, be sure to pick that up at your local comic book shop. Uh, you can look for Stephen's Slasher Nation column, regular column in Fangoria. And right around the time this is released, it will be near the um, release date of Don't Fear the Reaper. I think I enjoyed it even more than My Heart is a Chainsaw. Well, yeah, the Reaper, it was really fun to write. I wrote it in, what, 10 weeks, I guess. I think it took 10 wow. weeks. Right? Um, it would have taken eight weeks, but I had some script work I had to stop and do. But um, um, the, the trick with the trilogy, writing a trilogy, is you realize that... Um, the first book is act one and the second book is act yeah. two the third book is act yeah. three and and the first act of stories are where you lay down the world and get all that the characters introduced and all that stuff you know and what's so by the time i got to don't fear the reaper the world and the characters were already there those of them who survived chainsaw which is not many of them you know that's <laughs> right that's right and so i didn't have to slow down to do that which was wonderful and so i could just hit the ground running and there's bodies just falling left and right from the get-go and every yeah. which way you know and it was so fun it was so fun to go fast you know i like yes. that a lot and and also my i think my best storytelling in novels happens like in um don't fear the reaper or flesh boy or um the long trial of nolan dugatti where i can um tell a story over like a day or a single shift or and yes, I, yes. I, I do really best in that and the reason for that is because I'm the worst at keeping timelines straight I'm also the worst at keeping family lines straight I don't care about that stuff I just like I'll say it's yeah. Thursday who cares and this, so what if it was Saturday yesterday that I don't care about that stuff um editors and copy editors always drag me across the coals and make me get that stuff right but it is yes. so I'm, I'm like kicking and screaming the whole way because that does not matter to me remotely I don't care who's whose cousin and how they're related I just say cousin I say uncle and I don't I don't think I mean the same thing other people mean when they say it because <laughs> <laughs> like for for growing up dead in Texas my editor had to make a family tree 
and show me that yes. I had people all in the wrong generations and stuff. And I was like, come on, can't we just kill them all and tell an easier story? You know, I'm, <laughs> but I, cause I, and also with timelines, oh, I'm the, I'm the worst with timelines. I just do not like keeping stuff in order. That drives me crazy, but I'm glad I have copy editors and editors to yes. make it straight, you know, cause there That's are readers right. who care about that stuff too. Yeah, I, I guess uh, the wor worst case scenario is uh, some is some you know yeah little um, break in a timeline or a lineage or something maybe a distraction I guess to a to an attentive yeah. reader and I don't know uh, God bless them for being attentive yeah. but it's really not the point of yeah. the narrative yeah. but it but it can be distracting I guess yeah I'm I'm, I'm so much more interested in the emotional interiors of these characters and how yeah. that drives their decisions and their what they say and do and everything that that that's fascinating to me but um i mean I, under, I understand that having a consistent timeline and like a map of the world and all that kind of stuff it makes for a a real place for these characters to be in i mean i understand like mechanically how it works yeah. but um that doesn't mean i like to do it i do not yes. like to do it <laughs> is there anything else we need to be looking for from you coming up in 2023 um yes but i can't say it hasn't been announced yet so <laughs> very good very it good announced by the time this this podcast drops i don't know <laughs> well um uh everyone be sure to follow steven on twitter uh at sgj uh 72 and where he's very active and and not only is steven active but his his readers are very active and you got a great group of readers who who love um love talking about your work and uh, it's it's really great to see um people um advocating for artists that they care about uh, yeah. i love to see that oh, it's, it's such an honor to be in a community with them you know yeah absolutely thank you so much this has been terrific man it's been great thanks <laughs>